You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? While you see it your way, run the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone. We can work it out. We can work it out. Think of what you're saying. You can get it wrong and still you think that it's alright. Think of what I'm saying. We can work it out and get it straight or say goodnight. We can work it out, we can work it out Life is very short and there's no time For fussing and fighting, my friend I have always thought Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 12th day of December, 2010. I would, of course, like to invite the listeners, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find out more about the articles, interviews, videos, and other websites that I've created and conducted over the past three and a half years, and also links to those websites that I support and that support my work and which, of course, I would like to, my listeners to look into so that they can broaden their scope of their foray into the world of alternative media. Having said that, of course, I know that all of the listeners are looking forward to the new website redesign, as am I, and it is basically ready to put up, but I am still awaiting the uh, new server login details from my new hosting company. So once that's available, I will be putting up the new website. And the DVD is also almost, as I speak, almost ready to go. So either, uh, I, I would say by Tuesday, either there will be a new website or the DVD will be available for purchase from the homepage. I'm not sure which it will be, but I will certainly uh, let you know as soon as it, it, it's available. And on that note, I would like to once again thank those listeners who have defied the direct orders from headquarters and taken the liberty of donating to the Corporate Report through the PayPal button on the homepage. And I'd like to thank Brad and Cody from the USA and Catherine from France for their donations. They are, of course, as always, greatly appreciated. And once again, I'd like to ask those people who are thinking of donating, well, why don't you just hold off a few days and buy a DVD instead? Or, better yet, buy several. Why not? And that's the best way to contribute, because then you get a little a little piece of the uh, Infowar armory for you to burn to disc and uh, copy to others and, and hand out to random strangers on the street and take this fight down to the street level and make sure that the information gets spread because that's the way we're going to win in the end. So, as always, there's a lot of information to go through today, so let's get straight into today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 12th day of December 2010. And now... For the real news. The San Francisco Weekly reported last week on a DNA sample switch in a San Francisco Police Department crime lab that was covered up by the SFPD for two years. The sample switch was revealed by a whistleblower who wrote a letter to the Public Offenders of Defender's Office and to the American Society of Lab Defenders detailing how the switch was brought to the attention of Matt Gabriel, the head of the DNA unit in the SFPD crime lab, who then ordered evidence of the switch erased by changing the labeling of the tubes in question and modifying the data 
in the computer system. At the moment, it is unclear which cases or even how many cases might have been affected by the Switch because all of the original notes of the Switch have been destroyed, although a homicide case is believed to have been involved. The case highlights some of the fears that civil liberty activists have had for years about the increasing use of DNA sampling in routine police work. In August of 2009, Israeli scientists reported how easy it could be to plant fake DNA evidence at the scene of a crime in order to frame someone up for that crime. As Tanya Samuncelli of the ACLU remarked at that time, DNA is a lot easier to plant at a crime scene than fingerprints. We're creating a criminal justice system that is increasingly relying on this technology. Worryingly, DNA samples are not becoming more protected, but in fact more freely available, as the very governmental authorities who would be in the best position to deliberately frame the innocent for crimes that they did not commit are advocating the expansion of criminal DNA databases to include those who have not even committed a crime. President Obama called earlier this year for the creation of a national DNA database of people arrested for any crime whatsoever, regardless of whether that person is convicted. Um, I think that this is something this country has to deal with. The, it's it's the, the right thing to do. And then, as you well know, John, this is where the national registry becomes so important because what you have is individual states, they may have a database, but if they're not sharing it with the state next door, uh, you've got a guy from Illinois driving over into Indiana, uh, and you know they're not talking to each other. And, and so making sure that not only are we getting these DNA uh, tests done state by state, but then nationally, everybody's talking to each other. That's how we make sure that we continue to tighten the grip around uh, folks who have uh, perpetrated these crimes. Now, as residents of the US, Australia, Canada, and much of the Western world are only beginning to find out, the blood samples taken by hospitals of every newborn baby have been being stored in secret government DNA databases for decades. Well, every year, about 400,000 babies are born in Texas. Now, before they're discharged from the hospital, they leave something behind for the state, a sample of their DNA. Now, the blood spots are used to screen for a list of life-threatening diseases. Now, this is a copy of a blood spot. Now, while in the hospital, the baby's heel will be pricked and five drops of blood are collected. A couple weeks later, another five drops of blood are taken at the pediatrician's office and sent to the state. Now, the newborn screening process only used one or two of the spots. So what happens to the remaining samples? Well, the state keeps them. The problem? They've been doing it for years, unbeknownst to parents. Dr. Frederick Whitehurst was an FBI agent at the Washington Bureau's crime lab from the 1980s until 1998. He blew the whistle on the sloppy practices of agents in the lab, including deliberately altered reports that were used in criminal cases. Although he has first-hand knowledge of the ways in which law enforcement authorities can wrongly convict people by forensic tampering, he is hopeful that the internet will help to ensure that this tampering will not go unnoticed or unpunished by the public in the future. Earlier this year, he appeared on The Alex Jones Show to discuss these topics. Well, you were talking about, um, are things getting worse or getting better? And I think they're getting a lot better. I think because we have instantaneous knowledge now. We're connected through the Internet, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And we can, we can research on our own from our living rooms, our bedrooms, our offices, even our cars. We can be at the beach and find out that, for instance, an article just came out while I was waiting for this, um, this show here. The Nebraska CSI chief has been found guilty of um, planting evidence. We know about those things now, and 
And, and that's really healthy. When a government controls the knowledge base, then that becomes dangerous because their inferences may not be proper inferences. We, as a people, govern this nation. That's what, that's what our goal is. It, it may at times we vary from it. But, sir, I think that with instantaneous knowledge, then we're, we all can take part in juries. We can all take part in who we elect. We can say, I'm not sure about this. We, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I had a guy in North Carolina before the North Carolina Innocence Commission. His name's Dwayne Deaver. Told him 18 years ago during trial of this man who was before the commission, there were two tests that decided whether it was blood in the evidence. And um, one of them said yes, and the other one said no. And he only reported the yes. And it has shaken up this state to think that a man in our crime laboratory, a lowly state employee, can put a guy in jail forever. They just unilaterally decide, well, I'm not going to report the stuff that would hurt the prosecutor's case. We found that out instantaneously. This wasn't in some court 500 miles from here, whatever. It's all over the news, all over the place. And so I think it's really, things are getting better. In other news, the 16th annual conference of the parties wrapped up in Cancun, Mexico this weekend with a non-binding agreement to continue talking about a climate change agreement next year. The UN-led group created a meaningless agreement of vague and scientifically unsound promises to keep future supposed warming under 2 degrees Celsius by reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 80 to 95 percent by 2050. The text being non-binding is looked upon as meaningless, but did include a provision for the long-sought goal of creating a so-called Green Climate Fund, administered by the UN COP agency, of $100 billion a year annually by 2020 from the developed nations. No provisions were included to suggest how this money will be collected, but many observers are noting that this represents the first truly global governmental agency and the first step on the path to the creation of the first global tax. These fears were confirmed earlier this year by UN IPCC official Otmar Edenhofer, who confirmed that the global, global climate talks are not about science, but about redistributing the world's wealth. Basically, it's a big mistake to discuss climate policy separately from the major themes of globalization. The climate summit in Cancun at the end of the month is not a climate conference, but one of the largest economic conferences since the Second World War, he told Germany's NZZ Online Sunday last month. One must say clearly that we redistribute, de facto, the world's wealth by climate policy. Dr. Tim Ball appeared on the Corbett Report earlier this week to discuss the true nature of the Cancun summit and the UN's interest in climate. Well, I think, I think that the, the pressure to keep uh, the, car, the CO2 thing going uh, is very uh, high, um, because, of course, there, there are uh, people that made political careers on it, but there's also academics that have made academic careers on it. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the, the huge amounts, and I'm talking into the hundreds of millions of dollars of funding uh, going to the research and into corporations that have been set up around uh, tax breaks on alternate energies and uh, all of these other things. And uh, so you, you built up such a huge part of the economy uh, around the alternate energy and uh, the so-called green jobs and so on that uh, it's going to take some uh, time because there will be considerable resistance, even though people will say, well, yeah, 
okay, so the science is all phony, so what? Um, you know, we're, we're making money off of this, and, and that's what's important. Uh, so I, I think that it, it, it will gradually die, but it's going to take some time. And then, of course, what we've got to do is, is put in place uh, alternate policies to uh, deal with the lack of energy that's required, that's going to be needed. Finally this week, official wor word has come that Congressman Ron Paul will be the chair of the House Com Subcommittee on Monetary Policy in the new Congress, meaning that he will be the one in charge of monitoring the very Federal Reserve that he seeks to abolish. Uh, Congressman, what is your first action going to be? Well, we'll probably think things through and not overdo things too soon. Well, you know, the uh, new session hasn't started yet. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll have plans for hearings to find out uh, how much information we can get. Obviously, it's very popular with the American people to audit the Fed, to know what they're doing. When they can spend trillions of dollars and we don't know where it goes, they have a bigger budget. They spend more money than the Congress does, and yet we have no oversight. It was never intended that a secret body like this could create money out of thin air and spend it, take care of some banks and big business and foreign banks right. and the American people struggle? I mean, some, we have to look into it and we have to start to consider reforms. Now please go to CorbettReport.com to download episode 165 of the Corbett Report podcast, How to Talk to Others, as we listen to examples of how to talk to people who disagree from Richard Andrew Grove, Charlie Veach, Alex Jones, and We Are Change. Welcome, my friends, to episode 165 of the Corbett Report, How to Talk to Others. Now, let me just take a moment at the beginning of this episode to say something which I, I don't think needs to be said, but perhaps for new listeners out there who might not know how these episodes work, well, certainly the title of today's episode is not meant to be taken so literally. Of course, I am not here to presume to tell people how they should or shouldn't talk, how they should or shouldn't act or how they should or shouldn't think. In fact, that's the exact opposite of what I'm here to do at the Corbett Report. And all I'm here to do is to facilitate the transference of information that I've found interesting and valuable in my own research and ask you to think about it for yourself, which is why I include, of course, source documentation for each and every episode of this podcast, so that you can go back to the source material and take a look for yourself without having to take my word for it or anyone else's word for it. So the how-to in the how-to-talk-to-others of today's episode should, of course, be taken a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and longtime listeners will undoubtedly know that from past episodes like How to Cover Up a Scandal and other such tongue-in-cheek episodes. But, of course, today I'm not here to tell you how you should or shouldn't talk. In fact, you'll find very quickly that basically my underlying theme for today is that there is no one way for people to talk to others or one way that is right for communicating this type of information that we're covering on a week-to-week -week basis here at the Corbett Report. In fact, there are as many different styles of communication as there are people, and there are also as many different types of people who will be receptive to that information as there are people. So there are many different ways to communicate, and each different way has its pros and cons and will reach different people in different ways. And it's my thesis that if everybody is acting in whatever way comes naturally to them, then ultimately all of us together will be able to spread this information much more effectively than any one central conformist view of how to talk to others. 
but I think there are, of course, more and less effective overall ways of communicating, and we need to look at some of the people out there who are communicating in effective ways as examples of what we can or should be striving for in trying to wake people up and engaging in this extremely delicate process of unlocking people's minds and attempting to bust through the layers upon layers of programming and preconceived responses that have been drilled into us, really, by uh, corporate-controlled media, establishment-funded media, and all sorts of uh, establishment schooling and other ways that the social engineers have been working on us throughout our whole lives, often without us even having the slightest idea that we are being programmed to accept a certain view of the world. Well, of course, it's very difficult to break through that programming and to jack someone out of the matrix. It's a very delicate process, and it requires some strategy. So let's get straight into the examples, and today I'd like to start with one of those synchronistic events that are not pre-planned in the making of these episodes, but that somehow seem to indicate that I must be on the right track. So this week I was listening to the Peace Revolution podcast at peacerevolution.org, which of course I would exhort my listeners to check into for themselves, as I find it to be a particularly uh, effective way of communicating some very important and underlying information about how to wake up to the reality that we're facing and how to do so in, a, in an effective and fear-free manner. So peacerevolution.org is a great place for that. And of course, that's the podcast of Richard Andrew Grove and the other media collaborators behind tragedyandhope.com. And in this episode of the Peace Revolution podcast, uh, Richard Andrew Grove was talking to Maria Heller of Maria.net about this very topic, about how to communicate effectively with others. So let's listen in on their conversation and see what answers they come up with. When you, when you bring it back to this illusion-based culture that we've all been forced into, we've been force-fed and trying to not only break yourself away from it, to wean yourself off of it, but to not be alone in that process and be able to communicate with friends and family in such a way that you're speaking freely, your parhesia, your attempt to speak the truth, even at your own expense, is not scrambled out by all these emotional reactions that they've used psychological techniques and psychological warfare on the, the audience to get them to, to shut off logic and reason mm-hmm. and to shut off family members who might be trying to communicate with them. Right. Right. And, and that makes you, you know, or made me as a whistleblower take a step back and say, whoa, even, even though I know this is kind of hard to believe, I have this evidence and I'm related to these people. So why are they having such a hard time seeing mm. what is so obvious if you only integrate these other pieces of information that you haven't been spoon fed? Right. Right. And then you get down to people's emotional investment in beliefs that do not serve their needs. Mm. Yet we're so emotionally attached to them. We have emotional beliefs and investments in things that we haven't observed or studied. So you have to ask yourself, what kind of crazy conditioning gets people to be so attached to things that they've never even really studied or might not be interested in if they did? Right, and they'll still argue and get wild over it. Right, and and how does anyone benefit from that? I think, rather, it's a type of conditioning that has been instilled among the prisoner population, which is the 99% of the people on this planet, and it keeps us from making progress or threatening the control structures. But once we learn how to communicate within ourselves, like Marshall Rosenberg said when he was mediating between these tribes in Africa, the one chief stood up and said, hey, if we knew how to talk like this, we wouldn't have to kill each other. Mm-hmm. That is the true meaning. If I had an idea or an illusion of civilization growing up, 
that was kind of what I understood it could be, a place where people don't have to kill each other to kind of resolve differences, a place where some people don't have to be preyed on by these other people, where people had intellectual self-defense, because in 99% of the times in your life, you don't need to defend yourself physically, but every day you need to defend yourself from these ideas that are bombarding you from the status quo, whether it's through advertising or news or the guy knocking on your door or the IRS or whoever who's trying to tell you what to do every day. Mm. You need to be able to defend yourself, to separate yourself from that, to not take it personally and to start looking at life through observations without adding your own judgments on there because it's those additional judgments that are preventing us all from communicating clearly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, hearing, and hearing what our needs and feelings actually are, and that's uh, what leads to the solutions. That's what can lead to peace. Now, let me and ask it, you this. So, okay, you're taking your nonviolent communication to the airport. Say you're, you yourself are going to get on a plane and fly out to Phoenix. Sure. How will you handle them saying, are you going to go through the body scanner, sir? I would ask them the question, of, oh, it, it, is it mandatory? Are you going to arrest me if I don't? To which they don't have an answer. They cannot arrest you for not going through the body scanner. And then I would articulate the need. I understand your need to ensure that I'm not doing anything that I'm not supposed to be doing as far as carrying things on this plane. I also have the need for you not to fondle my genitals. Uh-huh. So somehow we're going to have to negotiate. I understand your needs. I'm not, I don't blame you. You are just a guy here or a, or a woman here who's trying to earn their living and put food on your kids' plates, right? But neither one of us wants to compromise national security. And if you have a need for security, which is why you're working for TSA, and you have a need for a paycheck, let's not put that all in danger by me having to say that, for instance... <laughs> When someone holds you against your will without arresting you and they are armed, that's aggravated kidnapping. Now, we certainly wouldn't want that because that would go against your needs of putting the paycheck and, mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff to go. And it, it goes against my needs because I don't want to have to do that today. I just want to get on this plane. So I'm totally cooperating with you. I just want you to know that I'm not going to blindly capitulate and be a sheep, but I'm also letting you know I'm not any threat. And I'm not going to be violent because I'm not going to raise my, my voice. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that would be a good way of handling it. For those of you out there who are as yet unfamiliar with Richard Andrew Grove or his incredible whistleblower story related to 9-11 and then to Wall Street and the SEC, you can check out, of course, Project Constellation, 9-11 Synchronicity Podcast, uh, tragedyandhope.com and peacerevolution.org. Or for the short-form synopsis of his Wall Street whistleblower story, you could also try The Insider, uh, an episode of Film Literature in the New World Order that I put out recently on my YouTube channel. But to respond to what was being said in that clip, that right there is an extremely novel idea, isn't it? Talking to these people wearing whatever fluorescent jackets or bright shiny badges they are, pretending to have whatever authority they pretend to have over us, talking to them as if they're human beings, trying to relate to them, understand their needs, and talk to them in a rational, civil way that will hopefully change their minds about what they're doing and about what their place is. Could such rhetoric actually happen in the real world? No, that would be impossible. Well, 
Okay, it's not. And let's take a look at a perfect example of that from an old friend of the Corbett Report, Charlie Veach of The Love Police at cveach.org and of course at cveach on youtube.com. And uh, I once again would suggest people take a look at some of the uh, the incredible videos that Charlie Veach has had of various encounters with various policemen in various countries wearing various fluorescent jackets or various shiny badges attempting to exert authority over the uh, the love police and the situation, but uh, somehow Charlie often manages to diffuse the situation by using peaceful, nonviolent, cooperative, and yet firm rhetorical strategy to actually get the police on his side. It's quite a wonderful thing to behold, and something that I often find myself riveted to when I'm watching his videos. So let's just take a recent example of that with Charlie Veach putting a policeman in his place. Ladies and gentlemen, we would like to welcome our brothers in uniform, in the fluorescent jackets and the police uniform who are coming over here. We hope they are nice, gentle people as we are, and that they might, if we ask them very nicely, give us smiles and maybe even a hug. Hey, Daniel. I'm well. How are you? I'm not going to hug you, so I'm not going to hug you. I don't know you. I'm Charlie. Just to let you know, guys, I've got a head cam on at the moment. All right, okay, so I am. Oh, wow. Is it okay if we record you? You can record me if you really... Be careful with the dripping. What are you um, here for today? Um, it's a Love Police presentation. <laughs> right, okay. We don't and, get them uh, very often. And, uh, what, it's, what's your purpose for being here, then? Can I please give you a hug, first of all? No, you can't. Can I shake your hand? No. Oh, I'll but your, your colleague shake my hand. It's, it's human contact. What it is okay, is to... Fine. I'm just handing I'm not shaking your hand. Why are you here? It's a Love Police Academy. It's going to get a group of people out to lower fear and raise love and enjoy the great British traditions of liberty, free speech, and joy. So what we do is we try and use comedy to talk about some of the mainstream issues like the wars, <coughs> shopping, corporate state, the banking bailouts. And um, we invite people, and we have been inviting people to use the megaphone and talk themselves. How does that sound? Okay, so it's really just a general, you're not here as in um, speaking about a particular thing. It's just, it's just a freedom of speech thing that you're here for, is it? Just speaking freely. I don't know what else it could be. I'm, it's, it's all it is, yeah. Okay. Well, one of the main reasons was obviously you're attracting quite a lot of attention at the moment. That's this good. Is, this is quite a compact area, um, which is obviously causing a bit of issue in terms of obstruction and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what we'd be looking to do, I mean, obviously you, you have got your freedom of speech. Uh, if we can get you to more of a... A sort of an open area um, where it's the, not so um, compact. The issue we have is obviously the weather. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Um, what happens with the footage that is used from the camera on your shoulder? What happens to it? Yeah. It, goes, it goes onto our secure database. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, if it's evidential, then we'll be keeping it for evidential purposes. Okay. okay. And if it is kept for evidence reasons. Yeah. Is that, would that be used as evidence in court? Yes, is that potentially. The, right. if, if there's evidence there that's going to suggest that it could be used in court, mm -hmm. yeah. The same goes to your camera if you've got evidence on, we think you've got evidence in your camera, you're recording then you, yeah, them. Yeah, we're all in that. I think the way, if I, please correct me if I'm wrong, but because we're in public area, there isn't the, what's the word, there isn't the automatic right to privacy. So that's why the council can justify having the <laughs> surveillance state with the CCTV and why it's okay in public for people 
like yourselves and us to film each other. Is that right? Yeah, there's no law against yeah. paparazzi or anyone taking yeah, photos. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, our issue is that fire hazards, that sort of thing, it's sure. going to cause a okay, crowd. Right, if large we, enough crowd that's going to create. If we move pop to another pillar here, because there's only like 15 of them. I will cut the clip there as the noise is a little bit much in the background on that video, but uh, I would highly suggest that people go to the documentation section for this episode and check out the video itself in its entirety, where the Love Police Academy takes place in Cambridge. Again, a riveting video, and yes, ultimately they do get the police to back off, and the police really don't pester them um, after that. It's, it's just an incredible thing to behold, and it happens time and again in Charlie's videos, so evidently he does have some type of strategy that works as well, at least in England. Although, of course, as my listeners might know, he was not so lucky in Canada, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. But suffice it to say, there are ways of talking to people in uniform that can break down the barriers that tend to be erected by the mental leaps of logic that go into the relations between people with authority and those without authority, or supposed authority anyway. And it's important to break down those barriers because, of course, policemen and women and TSA agents and all the rest are human beings underneath, and they will react and act like human beings nine times out of ten. So it's best to try those types of communications when they're possible. And my hat's off to those people who are recording these conversations and showing other people how it can be done. Because, again, there is no 100% right or wrong way to communicate something. There are only different ways. And the more examples that we have out there, the better we can become at doing this type of thing. So once again, please check out Charlie Veach on YouTube to check out more of his videos where time and time again he manages to diffuse the situation through humor and goodwill. But as I say, and as I maintain, there is no one style of communication that's right for all circumstances, and no one type of person has the monopoly on correct or better ways to communicate. I think there are different styles of communication that are needed for different situations, and different people will communicate differently, and they will receive communication differently, so we cannot limit ourselves to only one style of interaction. And so now I'll include a clip from someone that I think a lot of people might think is a strange example to include in the How to Talk to Others episode, because I know he is a polarizing figure, and some people are quite very much against his way of speaking. I refer, of course, to Alex Jones of Infowars.com, and I know some people find his confrontational and sometimes over-the-top attitude to be too much and to be off-putting. But I know there are different people out there who accept and appreciate his work for different reasons, such as myself. And I was at least partially woken up by Alex Jones and his work, and certainly absolutely unequivocally put on the path to starting the Corbett Report because of his in, the inspiration that he provided and the message that he provided, that simply by getting in the game and starting a website, you can make a difference. And I'm very thankful for that, because if I hadn't have done this, I would never have imagined what would have been possible, let alone actually achieved what I have so far achieved with the Corbett Report. So quite simply, I'll say it again for the record, without Alex Jones, there would be no Corbett Report, which is why I'm grateful to him and his style of communication, which did wake me up and slap my face and get, get, give me the kick that I needed to start looking into this stuff for myself. Now, sometimes his style is extremely confrontational and quite aggressive and in-your-face, as, for example, his encounter with the representative of the Optimum Population Trust, which we played in our recent episode on the myth of overpopulation, the underpopulation problem. 
Uh, that was, of course, quite a confrontational interview, and I think deservedly so, because obviously there was no back-and-forth communication or exchange of ideas that was going to move either side of that uh, communication. That communication was really intended for the listening audience and to let people know that it is extremely serious when people are talking about genocide. These people need to be confronted and in no uncertain terms. So I do think confrontation is a valuable and it's perfectly acceptable form of communication at times, especially when it is communication that is backed up by facts and research which is, I think, the most important part of any communication. And it always is interesting to see when people turn away from facts and will actually do anything they can to start name-calling or other strategies, rhetorical strategies, rather than actually deal with facts as they're presented. So right now I'd like to turn to a clip from Martial Law 9-11, Alex Jones's 2004 documentary, and one that I watched when I was uh, still waking up to all of this information. And one scene that really, really stuck with me and really got me to take a look into Alex Jones and more of his work was the scene where he talks to members of the Communist Party who are protesting outside the Republican National Convention in 2004, where Alex Jones merely approaches them to try to get some of their comments and ideas on the record and is immediately attacked for daring to put a microphone in their face. And in this clip, I think you'll find that he's actually quite not not very confrontational at all. He doesn't really raise his voice. But to see the way that these communists were treating him and just going over the top in their absolutely ridiculous and and quite quite immature to turning away from the facts that he was trying to present that was something that really got to me at the time when i was watching this for the first time so i'd like to share this example of communication with you for your consideration as a possible way of communicating with others we've been talking to a lot of the protesters and most of them say bush bad carry good the problem is bush and carry are cousins carries for the war and one of the few signs that we've seen that is exposing that both of them work for the same people and are part of a false choice is this communist revolution sign. But you know, I go back to 1958 when Eisenhower called Fidel Castro the Abraham Lincoln of Latin America. And so the problem is, is that it was actually the big central banks at the turn of the last century that created communism as a way to try to con the serfs back into serfdom. So again, another false choice is what we have here. Bush carry equals more war. I agree. They're corporate fascists. It's all true. But then the corporate fascists have funded this as their counter-revolution control valve. This is the true complexity that we're facing. And until we figure that out, we're going to lose all our freedoms, and they're going to keep winning. How you doing, ma'am? Hey, I, I like the top part of your sign. I agree they're all controlled. Are you a communist? Go away. But it says communist revolution. I really Why don't, don't want to talk to you. stop bothering this lady? What are, you, what are you worried about? What am I? I'm not. I'm not. What did you say? I didn't hear you. How can you say that? How can I say what? Very nasty what you just said. Did you hear what he just day. said? Did you hear what this guy just hey. said? He said something terribly nasty. That, that stuff doesn't work. You know, I don't know. This, this is in the 60s. Totally Look, he's trying to agitate. This is not going to happen. This doesn't work. Dude. This is not the 60s. Don't happen anymore. No, no, We're no. living in. The what I'm saying is. What I'm saying is. I'm saying. Communism. Communism. You work for the U.S. government, don't you? This guy said over here. This guy's nasty. 
Boy, he is nasty. You are See, nasty. I'm nasty. I said that the said some... work for the big banks. Oh, the big banks. This, man is, this man is from the big banks. He's from Chase Manhattan. See, this, he isn't interested in information. He's actually interested in putting out this info. Chase Manhattan and Citibank. And Citibank and Chase Manhattan are part of capitalism. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this is the communist for you. All disinfo, all propaganda. It's all part of capitalism. It's all part of capitalism, isn't it? You're a capitalist. You're a capitalist. You're a capitalist. The U.S. government admits they put Mao in. Capitalist. U.S. government admits they put Mao in. Capitalist. You're a capitalist, are you? How much money do you have on you? You're a capitalist. Free markets? What does that mean? You're capitalist but masters. What does a free market mean? What's a free market? How long have you been a person? How long have you been a jerk? Right. How long have you been a jerk? 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 Do what, mate? Grow up. You should, asshole. Grow up. No, I mean, I'm... I'm trying to find out. I agree with the top. I'm trying to find anything. I'm trying to be a disruptive jerk. Why don't you grow up and get out of here, please? Bush carry equals more war. I agree with that. Thank you. Good. That's what I'm saying is, is that the communists were actually at the beginning funded by the same people. They, it's all consolidation. That's all I'm saying. Good. Thank you. So you guys don't care about facts. It's all just disinfo. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Sounds good to me. So you don't care that Stalin killed 50 million people? So, yeah. So go, so go ahead. So what else? So you don't care. So who are you? How many people did you kill? No one. But your ideas killed millions and millions and millions. Capitalism. You're a capitalist. You're a pro-capitalist. So we see these communists down here who say Bush carry both equal war. And we go, yeah, we agree with you. But why are you for communism? Because communism... Actually, as Professor Carol Quigley at Georgetown, Bill Clinton's mentor, said, was a creation of the big banks to centralize governments and con the people into a movement for the population that was really for the establishment. And they began to threaten to want to kill us. Some of it we got on tape, some of it we didn't. Hey, guys. How's it going? Tell us what you think about this. We're members of the Revolutionary Communist Youth Brigade. If you want to connect an interview, we can hook you up with our spokesperson. You're not allowed to, to talk yourself? Wow. If you want an interview, you should talk to the spokesperson. Well, have fun. So, you, so your leaders don't let you talk yourselves? They, they've never been to the Soviet Union, Poland, or anywhere in the Eastern Bloc. Look at them. They're like 18 and 20. Come on. And you got these old... Why don't you talk to some mainstream Americans? Okay. Okay, we know where you're coming from. You're looking you're looking to uh, No, we're to make people in Lima. No sir, we're not mainstream media. We're actually trying to just make a documentary about all the different views that are at the convention. And everybody's been real nice to us but communists, they always flip out when we try to talk to them. Now, once again, I do find that to be an effective piece of communication, but there are multiple levels here, so let's not just take it at face value. Obviously, there was no possibility of getting through the programming of the people who were just mindlessly blathering that uh, Alex Jones was some sort of capitalist without listening to a single thing he was saying or refuting a single point that he was making about the actual facts. 
there was no way in that situation to really break through the programming and conditioning of those people who really didn't care about those facts at that time. They were just there to make their point. Well, fair enough. Sometimes there are situations in which communication is simply not going to happen in a in a concise or rational manner. So I found that to be an effective piece of communication, not insofar as the actual conversation between those people was uh, concerned, but the way that Alex Jones was very clearly demonstrating to the viewers of that video that these people had no point to make. They had no way of refuting what he was saying. They had no interest whatsoever in talking about actual facts. In fact, they were looking to get out of that conversation in whatever type of juvenile way they could. And that point is made extremely effectively to the viewer of the video. So there's a third level of communication that's going on here, a higher level of communication than simply what was taking place between those two people. So when you add the camera to the mix and are thinking about how to communicate to people who are watching the conversation, that could be another form of communication. And people have to think, uh, how is that going to happen? And I can attest to the fact that myself personally, watching that video back in 2006, when I was really just beginning to open up to this new paradigm, had never really encountered the type of information that Alex Jones was saying in that clip before. And it was interesting enough to me, and it was appalling enough for me to see the way those communists were treating that information, that I actually became interested in looking into it for myself. And of course, that started the snowball in lots of other ways. So again, I think that was an extremely effective piece of communication. And again, I'm not asking you to agree or disagree with me. I'm just asking people to open up to very different styles of communication and realize that many people are out there putting this information out in very different manners. And yes, sometimes it results in people having calm and rational conversations, and sometimes it results in arguments. But all forms of communication can still be effective in educating others. So let's take a look at another group that I think and I have featured on this podcast before and has done some incredible work talking and confronting even at times various politicians and other people in the media and and other places of power in our society and confronting them on what they have or have not done or the statements they have made in the past and those types of things. And these types of conversations, of course, are often referred to as confrontations and can be quite confrontational. Perhaps that's an unfortunate way of phrasing it because that tends to frame the con- conversation right off the start as a as an argumentative one rather than one where information can be exchanged or viewpoints can be genuinely uh, learnt about. And uh, of course, I'm referring to We Are Change and the work that they've been doing, the citizen journalism movement that has been putting, taking the camera and using YouTube and other such social media to really expand the scope of citizen journalism beyond what was ever imaginable in any other time of human history and has has already had some incredible and remarkable successes in, in breaking through the, the mainstream media silence on these issues, such as the time when We Are Change confronted Rudy Giuliani back in the 2008 presidential nomination race, and that made mainstream news and highlighted the fact that not all 9-11 victims' family members are great fans of Mr. Giuliani, Mr. 9-11, shall we say. Well, at any rate, We Are Change has had uh, just such a wide range of confrontations with such a wide range of politicians that it's, of course, well, fruitless to talk about it in general terms and fruitful to talk about it in specific terms. So I would like to turn to a specific conversation that I found to be 
particularly well done. In fact, one of the best that I've seen in terms of the way that this was done in a non-confrontational manner that managed to get a politician to admit to some pretty startling things, things that really should have made the front page in any realistic world where newspapers actually reported on information of value. Of course, we don't live in such a society, so it did not make front page headlines. But in this confrontation or conversation, maybe shall we say, between Luke Rutkowski of We Are Change New York and Vicente Fox, the former president of Mexico, we learned some startling things about the North American Union and what the leaders really think about uh, this this proposal. So uh, let's take a listen to this uh, example of how to communicate with a high-level politician and how to record that for posterity and put it out so millions of people can access it through YouTube and other social media sites. On uh, CNN's Larry King, you acknowledged the fact of uh, NAFTA currency, like the euro. Can you please talk about how you, as President of Mexico, President Bush, and the Prime Minister of Canada, established working groups towards a North American Union with the SVP prosperities without public approval? It's, uh, there is the, the original document, the original commitment, and uh, there is supposed to be follow-up uh, procedures, there is supposed to be committed committees uh, to discuss and to advance, but that's not happening. We're still tied up to the original uh, document. The highways are being built right now, the Trans-Texas Corridor highways are being built as part of the SPP building, the NAFTA highways. It's happening right now and the working groups are established. They're being built right now, from what I hear. You go to Texas right now. Yes. If you go to Texas right now, you see land being seized away from people building these highways. Of the North American Union. No, no, there's nothing going on in in joint investment in infrastructure or any any other uh, thing. And uh, so that's why I, my claim is that we should move on. There is this promotion of this idea of a NAFTA highway, a highly technological highway. Even some have said or promoted the idea that uh, that should be a a duty-free highway or a free zone highway so that you could move products without crossing the border because they would have uh, this road to move upon and else. But, but it's just plans and nothing concrete up to now. Yes, it is happening. It's happening yes. in Texas right now. Land is being seized. And what they're doing, and they're building the highways that are going to be planned, are going from Mexico all the way from the United States all the way up to Canada. And there's actually a nonprofit organization. I know about that project, but it's not a government project. I know, but Sintra, a private company, is building it right now. And and they're seizing land and they're doing that. They might be doing it, but it's not a a project of Mexico. Uh, It's welcome. I I hope they do it. Will there be a North American Union? Do you believe there will be a North American Union? I would hope so. I think it would be very convenient for both of us. But what about American sovereignty and everything we did and our Constitution and our Bill of Rights and everything our forefathers stand for? That's more important. Britain have not lost their sovereignty. Their Constitution is being destroyed over the EU Constitution. And when you have a North American Union, you have one world government. This is what David Rockefeller wants with the CFR, Bilderberg, Trial Arrow Commission. Germany, yes. France, and Britain, yes. not lost even though they have a parliament, they have not lost their sovereignty, they have not lost their but 
this is what they're doing. Dave they Rockefeller. Have highly benefited. Yeah. Can, can we, can we and that's why I said, I said, uh, solidarity uh, over selfishness. Yeah. This nation is very selfish. But it's, it's turning against that. It would yeah. be much better for the United States to have a healthy, uh, successful, uh, uh, profitable neighbor in Mexico than having a poor nation there unemployed. That's why we have to. But then the American economy goes down, you have immigration comes the in, Germany and the France Constitution is destroyed. Down. It goes down because you have illegal immigrants going into England and Germany, taking the English France, jobs. Very strong, so you have one currency, and that's what they do. It's policy, and then it's unionization. Britain doesn't have one currency. Once again, I'll cut that clip short because the audio is not pristine and it's somewhat difficult to make out, but I once again encourage you to take a look at that YouTube clip, which of course I'll put a link to in the documentation for today's episode so you can see the entire encounter and, and really marvel at the incredible way that Luke Krakowski was able to get Vicente Fox to talk about the North American Union and the ultimate plans for it and talking about the NAFTA superhighway and the one North American currency and all sorts of issues that uh, no mainstream reporter would touch with a 10-foot pole because they've been told not to, but which obviously the non-corporate media can go after tenaciously in, in conversations that would, even 10 years ago, would never have seen the light of day in any form, but now have been seen by tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people around the world because of the power that we have as independent citizen journalists and the power of the internet, of course. So, again, another great example of a way to talk to someone and to find out more about their point of view so that we can better understand what it is we're facing. Because although it is, uh, I think at times, I think it really is the most effective thing that can be done is to is to confront these politicians in a more, well, in a less uh, friendly way. Because obviously, I, I, there's not often a possibility for real exchange between the politician and the, the protester. But... Uh, uh, in this case, there was the possibility, and it was taken to its um, utmost extreme. So once again, I'm not telling anyone how to act or how not to act. I'm simply saying that there are different ways of communicating, and I think different things work better in different situations. And it's certainly up to the independent styles of the people out there to do things uh, in whatever way they see best. And there's another example that I would dearly love to play for you, but again, the audio quality is not that great, so I will not strain your ears to make you listen to it, but I would once again urge you to take a look at a YouTube video called Richard Gage AIA Wakes Up an American Citizen to 9-11 Truth, which again, I will put the link to in the documentation section. And I'm interested to note that I saw this video first two years ago, and I wrote a comment on YouTube, and it's now the number one highest rated comment on the video. But at any rate, I I do think this is a marvelous and wonderful video to behold. It uh, shows Richard Gage of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, who's conducting an interview with Jason Burmis on the Alex Jones radio show. And it shows uh, We Are Change LA, and Stuart Howe was actually filming him as he was recording this interview. And he's sitting outside talking on a cell phone. Uh, doing the interview and someone overhears him giving the interview and afterwards they talk to that person who says that she's had questions about 9-11 for a long time but was afraid people would think she was crazy for talking about them and just sitting there listening to Richard Gage give that interview made her realize that she is not crazy for thinking those things and they have a great conversation where she basically begins to open up and re uh, realize that 
that there is a lot more to 9-11 than what she's being told. And again, it's a wonderful moment of communication in which someone feels suddenly that they're not alone, which is really, I think, one of the greatest things about going out and communicating this type of information to others, because there are a startling number of people out there who do have questions and who are able to see through the lies and propaganda that we're being fed on a daily basis. But because we have been trained to think that we are in the by far in the minority, we simply accept that and often people will repress the ideas or questions that they have because they're afraid of what other people will think about them. And humans are fundamentally social animals, so we have to show that there is a social phenomenon right now of people questioning what we are being told and showing that what we are being told only ever really serves to benefit the power elite, which is why we have to show that there are other people out there who are working with this information and sane, level-headed people who have genuine questions about the types of things we're being told. And together, we will all be able to communicate these ideas in different ways to different people on different occasions. And ultimately, we have a chorus to whom often we are preaching, but that chorus is growing. So once again, I leave you to contemplate some of the examples that we've listened to today and think of others that you've seen and start to implement them in your daily life. Because whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you think, or whatever you agree or disagree with me on, I am just interested in trying to get more people out there active and in the game. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you very much for joining me for this edition of The Corbett Report and asking you to join me next week for episode 167 of the podcast, Social Engineering and You. I'm so scared.